And today we're looking at the seventh of the last of the I Am statements that are listed in the Gospel of John. And as we wrap up this I Am sermon series, uh, can you name the seven I Ams that we've talked about? Could you list them in order for us? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And today, looking at John chapter 15, I am the vine. And Jesus in this passage doesn't just stop with the imagery of a vine or a vineyard, but he goes on to blend in this picture of himself as the friend. So here we have two pictures of Jesus, as the vine and as the friend. And for the believer, we are portrayed as branches of the vine and friends of the great I am. This means that we have in our relationship with God both privileges and responsibilities. As branches, we have the privilege of sharing Jesus' life and the responsibility of abiding in Him. As friends, we have the privilege of knowing God's will, and we have the responsibility of obeying that will. In the summation of these two metaphors, we learn that Christians must consciously choose to depend upon God. Now, branches must abide. Friends must obey. So let's look at the branches first. In order to bear fruit, we are told that we must remain in Jesus. Verse 5 says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We must consciously choose to depend upon God. And in these first eight verses of John 15, we are taught that there is always fruit where there is life. Or flip that around. Where there is life, there is always fruit. But to have life, we have to be plugged into the source of life. And that's Jesus. Now, we happen to be in the section in the Gospel of John, chapters 13, 14, and 15, that are known as the farewell discourse of Jesus. Chapters 13 and 14, where he's saying goodbye to his disciples, he's doing that in the upper room during the celebration of the Passover meal. And as chapter 14, verse 31 concludes, there's a transition that's taking place there. At the end of that verse, Jesus says, Come now, let us leave. And it's highly likely that when the celebration of the Passover meal took place with the fruit of the vine, with wine being in all the respective cups that would be consumed during the Passover Seder, that this discussion about vines and vineyard would become very appropriate as they've just moved on from the Passover Seder meal. They would also have walked out of the east gate of Jerusalem, crossing over the Kidron Valley up to the other side, heading to the Garden of Gethsemane. And inevitably, they would have walked right past the temple. Because as the book of Exodus tells us, that the temple, the front of the temple, pointed to the east. And on the front of the temple was the golden vine, which was the emblem of Israel. Just like the, the bald eagle is the emblem of the United States of America. And it's also believed that Passover occurred at the full moon cycle of the moon. So the temple would have been highly visible, even though it was to be lit throughout the night anyway, but the moon would have added extra light. So as the disciples would have walked past, they would have seen the golden emblem of the vine on the front of the temple. They also crossed the Kidron Valley up to the other side, and they would have walked past numerous vineyards. Thus, this became the setting 
for Jesus' profound teaching. And biblically, please understand that Israel was viewed as God's vineyard. In Psalm chapter 80, verses 8 and 9, it says, You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. In Isaiah chapter 3, we have God speaking out against the leaders of Israel for what they were doing to the nation of Israel. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of His people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. You've been treating people unjustly. You're destroying, in doing that, my vineyard. And then, of course, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, is the prophet's Holy Spirit-inspired uh, um, song that God is giving to the vineyard, to Israel. I will sing for the love, for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, between, uh, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield? Only bad. Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its walls, and it will be trampled. It will, I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will be grown there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. Now in John chapter 15, Jesus is giving to us new symbolism. The vineyard isn't limited any longer to Israel. It's now for all the followers, or it now includes all the followers of God. And the vineyard is now all about the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. Verse 1 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the source of true life because Jesus is the true vine. True means genuine here. And Israel had been called to, God, to be God's representatives to this world, uh, the vine, but they failed miserably. Now Jesus is the vine, the genuine vine, the true Israel, and all of his followers are now his branches. And unless we're attached to Jesus, the source of life, the true vine, there can be no fruit. It is through a vital union with Christ that we produce fruit. Now please recognize here, by way of properly interpreting this passage, that this text is not a parable. It's not a story from everyday life that's easy to remember with a moral lesson, a punchline to it. It's an allegory where certain parts of the metaphor represent certain parties in everyday life. Jesus is the vine. God the Father is the vine dresser, and we are the branches. Verse 2 says, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit He prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. Verse 6 says this, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, 
thrown into the fire and burned. Now the vine dresser is a very important individual in the management of a vineyard. In fact, the owner of a vineyard will go to great lengths trying to go out and hire the best uh, vine dresser that they can possibly find to care for their vineyard. And if they can't find a good one to hire, they will take within their own ranks some young, up-and-coming, promising worker and train them for multiple years to become a good vine dresser because literally the production uh, and the well-being of the vineyard and, what, and, the, and the health of the vineyard depends on a good vine dresser. Now, grape plants need a good root system in good soil. They, they need a solid trunk, which will support the plant. And often, just like trees and other things that, that, that grow, suckers will come off of the trunk. And good vine dressers will clip those suckers because they're hijacking nutrients that should be going to the rest of the plant. Vines will then come off the trunk and branches off of the vines. Buds then will generally show up on the branches and good vine dressers will clip back those, those branches to where there's just a couple of buds left on them. They will prune them during pruning season to leave those two buds a short branch remaining so that when the growing season comes, they can flourish and produce good quality fruit. Any branches that do not bear fruit are cut off. Now, I am not a horticulturalist, but from what I understand, dead wood is worse than fruitlessness because dead wood can harbor diseases, molds, mildew, decay, and a host of detrimental bugs. So it becomes necessary to get rid of all the dead branches, all the dead wood. And please know that at the time Jesus was heading to Gethsemane on the night when he was going to be arrested and of course then the trial would take place and the next day crucified. At that very time, it was the time of year where pruning uh, was taking place and the burning up of the dead branches to bolster the production of their vineyards and to limit diseases. And in all likelihood, they would have probably walked past a few smoldering fires from earlier before the Passover began where branches had been burned. Perhaps they would even have a certain smell to them that because they came from that culture, they would recognize the smell of these burning and burnt up branches. And there would also probably be piles of branches that hadn't been burned in time before the Passover, so they would be burned after the Passover uh, uh, celebration would take place. Now, before I go any further in this passage, I need to raise a difficult theological uh, issue that many Christians believe this passage teaches. Can someone lose their salvation? This text uses harsh language of being cut off, of being destroyed and burned up that makes some Christians believe that a person can lose their salvation. Please know that that is a very good question but this is the wrong text to have that discussion. This entire context is speaking about fruit bearing. This passage is not speaking about our position in Christ. It's talking about our volition in Christ, meaning the use of our wills in obedience to Christ. Are we consciously choosing to depend upon Christ as the condition of fruit bearing? And what we lose if we do not depend upon Christ in our lives is the ability as Christians to bear fruit. Look at verses 3 and 4. You're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit 
unless you remain in me. To remain means to abide. It means literally to stay. Stay in that position. Don't depart from that position. It means to wait for. And vine dressers also, not only did they prune, and not only did they throw away the dead branches, but they would also raise up branches that were on the ground, that are in the dust and the dirt and the mud, and were not healthy branches that aren't going to produce like they should because they're not getting the sunlight, the photosynthesis that they need, and they're not always getting uh, the moisture and the other resources they need. So they will lift them up out of the ground, get them off the ground, hang them up on the arbor or on the fencing, uh, or put them on a rock or a stone, and they will wash them off, clean them up, so they can maximize their production. Look at what verse 7 says here about production of fruit-bearing Christians. If you remain in me, you stay in me, you abide in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. Your prayer life will be dynamic if you stay in me, if you stay close to me. And how does the vine dresser clean us up, wash us off like that? Well, verse 3 told us, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you through God's word, through the Bible. And earlier, Jesus taught this in his farewell discourse. In chapter 14, verses 15 through 18, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The word cannot accept him, the world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So God uh, has left the Holy Spirit. Jesus left the Holy Spirit when he departed. Verse 25 and 26, all this I have spoken while still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will come from the Father. I will send in my name. Uh, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Good vine dressers, trim off any runners, any branches with minuscule fruit that are consuming precious plant resources and, while providing minimal production. Did you know that many successful businesses annually do the same thing? They try to trim off the least cost-effective parts of their business. These are called efficiencies, where the businesses try to eliminate non-productive parts of their company to free up both time and resources for new opportunities. Well, the Bible teaches that God disciplines those He loves. And you know something about the vine dresser? You know something about God who disciplines? The vine dresser is never closer to the branches than when He prunes the branches. And God does that. Sometimes it's through the study of His Word. All the time it's through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it's through a sermon that we hear, or a friend, or something that we hear on Christian radio. Or sometimes it's through listening to Christian music, or through a Christian broadcast, or a podcast, or maybe a good Christian book that we're reading. Sometimes it will be directly through a counselor, a pastor, or a, a leader of the church. Uh, sometimes it will come to us through prayer or others who are praying for us. Sometimes we don't even know that they're praying for us, but we will get a sense of conviction. Uh, there's a pruning that's taken place in those times. At other times, it may come through hearing about someone else's struggles. There are many ways that God prunes us to make us more fruitful. 
And it's never an easy process for us to go through. It's true. We spend a lot of time and effort in fruitless activities. A simple, quick study of your screen time will point that out to you. Do you recognize your fruitless activities in your life right now? Don't be surprised if God does a little pruning in your life to make you more fruitful. Because branches that are not productive, God says, you know what he says they are? They are useless. They're worthless in that sense. And sadly, that is the biblical depiction of some Christians out there. They're not bearing fruit. And in God's kingdom and God's economy, that's a useless Christian in that sense. Now, churches also need pruning. How many times are things done a certain way because the church has already always done it that way? Even though that ministry or that uh, uh, event that they do uh, has long passed its expiration date and is no longer being effective in advancing the kingdom of God. How many churches continue to tolerate unspiritual control, keeping people in leadership positions who frankly need to be removed from those positions and, and not moving others into leadership roles who should be elevated to those positions? Churches are notorious for that. And numbers are certainly not everything. You know, sometimes churches actually need some losses. They need some pruning because there's some dead wood there. There's some bug-infested, moldy, mildew wood. There's some bad ideas and, and bad influences there that sometimes need to be pruned away and removed so that the church can become healthier and be better positioned for new growth. Jesus' disclosure to us is, I am the vine. And it's toward fruitful activity. And we have a responsibility to stay in Him, abide in Him. We must consciously choose to depend upon Him and bear fruit. And as verse 8 tells us here, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Now this theme of fruitfulness continues in verses 9 through 17, with the key of this section being found in verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. Obedience here is the prime characteristic of friendship with God. And listen to some of the common themes that are here in these last nine verses. As the Father has loved me, verse 9 says, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. And if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. Verse 12, my command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. Verse 16 and 17, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. We are commanded to obey. We are commanded and instructed to be fruit bearers with the key fruit in mind being that of love. And the gospel writer John, uh, to him, love is something that is utterly compelling. Some Christians, though, throughout history have become confused about the obedience that John speaks of here, the keeping of Jesus' commands. They think it means legalism that tends to move a person away from God's grace uh, to keeping score in order to obtain God's favor. And this is what the Pharisees 
are known for doing. So if you see legalism in the church, in the modern church today, what you're really seeing is ancient Phariseeism. That's what it is. And this is not what Jesus is saying here. He's explaining that obedience is the natural result of love. When you love someone, you try to do what pleases them. We actually teach that a lot in our pre-marriage counseling sessions here at Mission Covenant Church. And one of the passages that we use is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. The passage that starts out talking about submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then it goes on to say, wives, submit to your husband as unto the Lord, for the, the, the husband is the head of the wife. And then a few verses later, it says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Well, in our cancel culture, in our censorship culture, this is viewed as bad advice. This is viewed as totally patriarchal, misogynistic, sexist. And I got to tell you, that's all false. Because people that are saying that do not understand the cultural context of this passage. Yes, it was a patriarchal society. But this passage is actually harder on men than it is on women. Women had no voice back then. They couldn't leave their house, couldn't move outside the doorframe of their house without their husband's permission, couldn't vote, often were never educated, uh, couldn't own property. Uh, when children were born, it was the husband in the Roman Empire who decided if that child would live or would die. And there were more male offspring in the Roman Empire for that reason than there were uh, female offspring. And it was the church that actually took a lot of these abandoned children that were literally discarded and took them in and raised them and, and, and nursed them and brought them to health and raised them up in the church. That was one of the reasons why the church thrived in the Roman Empire because they took in all these discarded and unwanted children. And so to tell a woman that she has to, you know, uh, respect her husband and submit to her husband, and he's the head of the, that's nothing new. That was the culture they lived in. But to tell a man that he has to love his wife as Christ loved the church, that he has to be a husband, which means to be a gardener, that he has to protect and care for and sacrifice and love and meet her needs and all those kinds of things, that, is, that was radical information back then. It was harder on men than it was on women. And I even tell couples uh, nowadays that literally in our culture, if young women could find a man who would love them and care for them and sacrifice, they line up to be married to a man like that. And I also tell them that in my 30 plus years of ministry, I've never found a couple that was following the teaching of Ephesians chapter 5, where they're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that they're, they're loving one another as Christ loved the church, and, and they're, they're submitting as they need to, and, and they got that kind of order and structure in their relationship. I've not met a couple that had any significant marital problems. But I tell them, too, I have dealt with countless couples who have significant marriage problems because they're not following the teachings of Ephesians chapter 5. Folks, it is biblical. Obedience is the natural result of love. And our example is none other than Jesus. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Verse 13, uh, no greater love is anyone than this than would lay down their life for a friend. In the study of ethics, that sacrificing oneself for someone else, that's called super arrogation. It's the highest form of love that's known to humanity. 
15 years ago when this very addition was being built on the church. I officiated at the funeral of a young man who lost his life because he was camping with his three girls on that particular weekend. And they were wading out in the, the river at their campground there and splashing and playing in the water. And all of a sudden they got sucked in by the current. They had life jackets on. But he ran down as a dad, dove in the water to rescue his daughters who were being swept down the river in the current. And when he dove into the water, he hit his head on a rock and he ended up drowning. A 38-year-old woman who was also camping there who couldn't even swim, she went in after these three young girls. She also drowned in the process. Didn't even know who the family was. Now, the good news is these three children were all rescued, but two people gave up their lives trying to save them. Jesus has given up his life for us so that we can be in a relationship with him and we can love others through him like he has loved us. And I think there's perhaps no better time in human history than the present for the church to rise up and love others in this present world that's been rocked by a major pandemic. People right now are so transient. They're wanting to get away from others for health reasons, and because they do not simply agree with others. In fact, many rural areas, many small towns, and even small cities are trying to capitalize on this right now and trying to recruit people away from our metropolitan areas to move into their areas. And they are offering them incentives and tax breaks and uh, moving expenses and cash bonuses. And people right now are tremendously divided. They're divided ethnically, socially, spiritually, politically, morally, and along ethical lines. People right now are so afraid of what the future will bring, and they long for safety and security for their loved ones. People are so tired of all the hatred, all the violence and the demonstrations, and the disregard for human life, the disregard for freedom and for human rights and for people's personal property. People long for so much more than what this world is offering, and they want to be loved. They want someone who will listen to them, someone who will appreciate them as a human being. And this is why we need to remain close to Jesus. We've got to stay in Jesus. We've got to abide and remain in Him so that we can love people and offer to them the good news of Jesus who has changed our lives. If we're being attached to the world and listening to the voices of the world, we're not going to be able to offer people what they truly need. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. This world is longing right now for what Christians have. And look at verse 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from the, my father, I have made known to you. Servants don't know what their master's business is, but friends tend to be in the know. And Jesus says, you are my friends. And one of the tests of friendship is who do you confide in? Who do you tell your private things to in life? Who is in your inner circle? In the Old Testament, David had Jonathan. Their souls were knit together, the Bible says. Do you have someone in your life like that? Jesus says he's a friend like that, the kind of friend that we can talk to about everything in our lives. And he doesn't keep us on the outside. 
He keeps us in the loop, in the know. And all he asks of us is that we obey him so we can bear fruit. Fruit that will last. As verse 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Fruit has within it seed for more fruit. And spiritually speaking, where people tend to be more loving, it tends to surface around them. More people start being loving. More people are kind. Others around them become kind or gracious or understanding. It tends to create those things in others who are close to them. And parents, do you want your children to grow up and embrace the faith? To really, truly love the Lord? To want to follow Jesus? Follow God with all their heart, mind, strength, and soul? If that's what you really want in life, then what you need to do is to live out that faith that you're asking them to embrace. If you have a good marriage, if you are uh, uh, one whose life is centered on the Lord and centered on the Lord's love and centered on the Lord's unity and staying close to the Lord, there's a much greater chance that your children are going to grow up to embrace the faith. You know, there was a tribe in West Africa nearly a century ago that had a young toddler wander out of the village out into the tall elephant grass nearby. And the entire tribe looked till dark, and they were unable to locate that particular child. The very next day at first light, everyone in the tribe gathered together, and they joined hands and walked side by side through that elephant grass. And in a short time, they were able to locate the child. Unfortunately, it was too late, as the unusually cold night had taken the child's life. The mother of the child was inconsolable. As she cried and wept and wailed, she kept saying over and over again, if only we had joined hands sooner. If only we had joined hands sooner. Obedience is the prime characteristic of friendship with God. It's joining hands with God and with others in Christ, and staying attached to the vine, I am the source of love, so that we can love as He loved, before it's too late to make a difference for the kingdom of God in this world. Verse 17 says it well, this is my command, love each other. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you today for this eight weeks that we have been able to journey on, learning about the great I Am, your name, I Am, forever, and then learning these seven self-descriptions that Jesus has revealed to us of the I Am, and God, to recognize that each one of them are so symbolic of the salvation that's available to us in Christ Jesus and all the resources and the life that's available because of Jesus. And Lord, today, as we've talked about the vine, we recognize that it's so easy to wander off into uselessness, to listen to all these other voices instead of turning to you. And God, I really believe deep down inside, you're inviting us to set down the phones, to shut off the computer, shut down the television, to spend time with you regularly and to fellowship and worship and, and with others and to believe uh, in you, to stay in you. 
And then we won't be listening to the voices of the world. We'll be listening to your voice and abiding and remaining in you. And then, God, we will be positioned, well-positioned, to love as you loved what our world desperately needs out of us right now, to share the good news of Jesus because we are staying close to you and loving as you loved. Lord, may we be those kinds of people, as verse 8 says, fruit-bearing to the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name.